You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. People of the internet, tonight we are debating, is there evidence for God? And we are starting right now. Good evening, everyone. We have Dr. Ben Burgess crossing swords with Stuart Connectly for your enjoyment. Unfortunately, tonight, James couldn't be here. He's being prepped as a witness for the defense in the Elizabeth Holmes trial. We wish him good luck with that. So going first, and actually, we're going to let our debaters have a quick moment to introduce themselves. Uh, Stuart, could you introduce yourselves real quick? Yeah, my name is Stuart Connectly. Thank you guys for having me on, Ben. It's a pleasure to have a discussion debate with you. And I am a pastor in Connecticut, also a mental health therapist and apologist. I travel around uh, college campuses, just got back from Texas State and University of Texas speaking there. We, if you want to check us out more with the apologetics, uh, my TikTok is where we have our biggest audience other than TV, which is just my name, Stuart Connectly. So TikTok, Stuart Connectly. And then our YouTube channel is Ask Cliff, which is my dad's name. And uh, that's about all. Thank you, Stuart. Dr. Ben Burgess, would you like to introduce yourself really quick? Really quick? Uh, sure. So I'm a columnist for Jacobin Magazine. I'm an adjunct philosophy professor at Rutgers. And I wrote a few books, most recently and most relevantly, Christopher Hitchens, uh, What He Got Right, How He Went Wrong, and Why He Still Matters, which is coming out at the end of December. Thank you, Dr. Ben Burgess. Uh, so tonight, uh, going first, Dr. Ben Burgess is going to go first. He's going to lead us off. The format is uh, 10 to 12 minute openings. We're going to have 45 minutes of open discussion, followed by 45 minutes of Q and A. I want to let everybody to want to let everybody know, especially if it's your first time joining us tonight on Modern Day Debate, that we are a neutral platform hosting debates on science, religion, and politics, and we want you to feel welcome, no matter what walk of life you come from. If you have any comments or questions for one of our debaters tonight, fire them into the old live chat and be sure to tag us at Modern Day Debates. Super chats go to the top of the list. And we ask that you please make sure to keep the comments civil, attack the arguments, not the person, as insults will not be read. And that goes for the general discourse in the live chat as well. Our valuable moderators work tirelessly to elevate the conversation so please show them and each other and the debaters the respect of not hurling personal attacks and insults our guests are linked in the description below whether you're listening on youtube uh, via podcasts uh, so please click the links if you like what you're hearing hit the subscribe button because we have lots more live juicy debates coming your way including uh the saturday we have the perfect dawa uh, versus the apostate prophet debating the question, Islam, is Islam harmful? And with that, we're going to go ahead and kick it over to our debaters for the opening discussion. 
Uh, no, sorry, no. We're going to have our, op our opening statements from Dr. Ben Burgess for 10 minutes, and I'm going to start the timer 12, 12, on your first 12 minutes. Yes, you're right. Yeah. I'm going to start the timer on your first word, Dr. Ben Burgess. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Kaz, and thank you for doing this, Stuart. Before we get into the meat of the argument, I do want to spend just a minute clarifying the position I'm going to argue for, if only because I wouldn't want anyone to be unclear about this part. I'm an atheist, but I'm not an anti-theist. Uh, as I just mentioned, just wrote this book about the late Christopher Hitchens, and while I'm sympathetic to aspects of his critique of a lot of religious beliefs, this is a point where I really do part ways from him. Uh, Hitch was an anti-theist. He famously said that religion poisons everything. I don't really think that's right. I think unjust social hierarchies poison everything, and that religion is often used as rationalization for those hierarchies. Whether we're talking about you know, gender relations in contemporary Saudi Arabia, or for that matter, contemporary Moscow, Idaho, or the divine right of kings ideology undergirding European feudalism. But religious traditions are big, broad things with lots of worrying interpretations. And I personally have a huge soft spot for Christian socialists like Martin Luther King or Cordell West, or just to pick a third example of a progressive Christian at random, my wife, Jennifer. Uh, Christian leftists like that don't want to impose their religious beliefs on anyone else, but they do find inspiration in those beliefs for fighting for a fairer and more equal society, and that sounds good to me. Certainly, I like MLK and Cordell West and Jennifer a hell of a lot better than I like the kind of atheists who love Ayn Rand or maybe want secularism to be spread to Iran by the 82nd Airborne. But even so, I am an atheist, and that's what we're here to talk about tonight, so let's get into it. First point, if we're arguing not just about whether there's some sort of transcendent being, but about whether there's a God who's both all powerful and morally perfect, I actually think the world is soaking in evidence that at least this kind of God doesn't exist. To borrow an analogy from my friend Mark Warren, if I told you that there was an invisible giant who walked around all day, every day, painting the sky yellow, your first question wouldn't even be, where's the evidence? Your first question would be, why isn't the sky yellow? There's a similar problem with the belief that the universe was created and is ruled by an all-powerful, morally perfect being. Uh, the problem with this is usually called the problem of evil, although that word evil sometimes throws people off, because we're not just talking about people doing evil things to one another. We're talking about undeserved, unnecessary, gratuitous suffering, whether it comes about from evil human actions or cancer uh, or earthquakes or accidents on the highway. One of my favorite professors in grad school, Quentin Smith, uh, points out in one of his papers that you could run the problem of evil just based on natural laws that lead some animals to kill and eat other animals in really cruel ways that involve a lot of suffering, uh, inflict a lot of suffering on the prey. We don't think the predators themselves are evil because you know, we don't think they have free will in the matter, but the, that's not the question. The question is, would a morally perfect being have set it up that way? Would even a morally kind of sort of okay being have set it up that, that way? And I've got to say, that doesn't seem plausible to me. Now, theists have all sorts of ways of trying to explain this problem away. I'm sure we'll get into some of those later in the discussion. Right now, I just want to throw down a marker on the proposition that none of those attempts to explain it away are very convincing. But hey, maybe I'm wrong about that. Let's assume for the sake of argument that I am and that there's a super convincing answer to the problem of evil. If so, that just brings us back to the question of whether there's any evidence for the existence of God, any serious evidence. I don't think so. To give you some sense of why not, let's take a quick look at some of the main pieces of evidence that have been offered over the centuries. 
start with the teleological argument. That's the fancy name, but in plain English, the argument from design. Uh, even a century before Darwin, David Hume had a lot of fun with this one in his dialogues concerning natural religion. Hume points out that even if, for the sake of argument, you do accept that someone or something outside of the universe had to create it, there's absolutely nothing about the evidence around us that suggests that this something would have to be an all-powerful, loving, personal God. It could just as easily be a committee of gods. In fact, there's a lot about our world that would make a lot more sense if it was designed by committee and the committee members weren't always on the same page and sometimes they got in each other's way. Or it could be something totally impersonal, like a kind of cosmic spider mindlessly spinning universes. That sounds silly to us, but Hume points out that's because we're not spiders. We're rational creatures who design things in a conscious way, using our reason, and we attribute that to the unknown cause of the universe, but that's arbitrary. And uh, he points out that underlying assumption that anyone or anything did create the universe is also arbitrary. Why would we believe that? Why shouldn't we think that some version of the universe has always existed? Well, fast forwarding from Hume to the present day, contemporary physicists uh, tell us that the universe we live in expanded out from this zero dimensional space-time point that was the Big Bang singularity about 13.7 billion years ago. But even if that's true, that still leaves open the question of whether our bang was the first bang. There are string theorists who postulate that our expanded and then dying soap bubble of a universe coexists with a multitude of other soap bubbles, with every black hole in one universe being the big bang of a new baby universe. And if we're asking whether that's true, that gets tricky. It's very hard to have direct evidence for or against string theory, just as it's very hard to have direct evidence for or against the contrary speculation that our bang was the first bang. But from what I understand, uh, it seems like what string theorists are saying is a mathematically elegant way of connecting the dots of a lot of pieces of empirical evidence that we do have. And so many scientists believe it's rational to accept it as a matter of inference to the best explanation. Uh, fans of Destiny's YouTube channel will know that I'm a big fan of this concept from philosophy of science, inference to the best explanation. That's the principle that when you have two theories that are both logically consistent with all of the evidence, you need to judge which one is a better explanation by trying to figure out which one is simpler and cleaner and which one has more of what philosophers of science call explanatory power, those two don't always point in the same direction and so on. But hey, I'm not a physicist, Stuart isn't a physicist, and neither of us are in much of a position to make a well-informed argument one way or the other about the details of this part. So just as an intellectual exercise, just for the sake of argument, let's assume that string theory isn't true. Let's assume that our bang was the first bang. Great. Do we then have a good reason to think that God created the Big Bang singularity? Well, some people say yes. And if you push them you know, about why they say yes, they'll say it's because something can't come from nothing. Push them a little further. And what people usually say is, well, why can't something come from nothing? They'll say, well, because everything has to have a cause. All right, fine, let's go with that principle. Everything has to have a cause. But here's the problem. If the chain of causes goes back forever, then every link in that chain does have a cause. It's caused, it's caused by the previous link. Whereas if there's a first cause, then by definition, that first cause would be an uncaused cause. We've actually violated the principle that everything has a cause. Now, to be fair, there are more complicated and sophisticated versions of the cosmological argument out there. I'd be happy to talk about some of those in open discussion or Q&A, but if we do, my position is gonna be that the more complicated and sophisticated versions 
all end up falling prey to a more complicated and sophisticated version of the, what about God? Why doesn't God need a cause objection? But let's say I'm wrong about that and there's some way to get around this problem. Here's the bigger issue. In another one of his papers, the late Quentin Smith pointed out that even if you totally buy the argument that there has to be a first cause, there's no reason at all to say that the first cause has to be any sort of God. It makes at least as much sense to say that the original Big Bang singularity itself was the first cause than to knock it back one step by saying that God was the first cause. Saying that the first cause is an infinite mind that loves us and cares about us might fit better with our poetic sensibilities as human beings than saying it was a mindless zero-dimensional space-time point. But in terms of the structure of the argument, it's hard to see why we actually have any more reason to think that God was the uncaused first cause, if there was one, than that the Big Bang singularity was the uncaused first cause. But even if the classic arguments for the existence of God are as bad as I say they are, that by itself, you might think, doesn't get me all the way to atheism. Why am I not just an agnostic, reserving judgment one way or the other? Well, we talked a little bit about the problem of evil, and I actually do think that the problem of evil gives us a good reason to be atheists and not just agnostics, at least if we're talking about a morally perfect God. But even if we assume for the sake of argument, there's some good answer to the problem of evil, I'd still be an atheist, not just an agnostic. And here's why. Earlier, I mentioned inference the best explanation. If we have multiple explanations that are all logically consistent with the evidence, what we have to do is to compare them, and see which one's better. So let's say that you say that there's an invisible giant, but he doesn't paint the sky yellow. He just repaints it blue. It's already blue and he adds another blue layer. And you further say that the giant doesn't crush farmhouses and skyscrapers as he moves around repainting the sky blue since um, you know, the giant is magic. He just passes through the buildings like a ghost. And assuming you keep adding qualifications until we have to admit that the existence of this invisible giant repainting the blue sky more blue is logically consistent with all of our evidence, just like his non-existence is logically consistent with all of our evidence, I still don't think that most of us would be agnostic about whether there was a giant. I don't think we'd reserve judgment. I think we'd just say, no, that's probably not true. And for similar reasons, I think we should say the same thing about God. Sorry, I was muted. Thank you, Dr. Ben Burgess, for that wonderful opening statement. And Stuart, so sorry, uh, Connectly. Connectly. Nailed Thank it. Thank you. Wow. Got it. Uh, kicking it over to you for your opening statement. And let me reset yes. this timer, reset, and uh, I will start your timer on your first word. Great. Kaz, Ben, Amy, thanks again. Okay, so three points here. I'm a pastor, so I will use points shamelessly with extreme illustrations. That's typically how it goes. My wife hates that. I totally understand why she does. But the three points are, one, it takes faith to reject God. Yes, you heard that right. It takes faith to reject God. Two, you have big problems if you don't posit God. And then three, the beauty of this world, if you have God, makes sense. So one, it takes faith to reject God. Two, you have problems if you don't posit God. And then three, the beauty within the worldview of theism. So I would say Ben and I are not brains and vats. I would say we probably have an emotional side, a, the rational side as well, social side. I do believe we both live in plausibility structures. The great um, 
Boston University, Peter Berger, sociologist. I used to know him, passed away not too long ago. And he talked about, he invented the plausibility structure and we're all impacted by our surroundings more than we realize. So I think that's true for Ben. I think it's true for myself. But I think we need to look at this debate, again, not just from the classical arguments and whether the classical arguments intellectually are correct or not, because we're more than just brains and vats. We're, we're more than just intellectual human beings. I'm not going to live out my life behaviorally, for example, simply by some intellectual game playing. No, it's going to be, does this worldview, atheistic worldview or a theistic worldview make sense of, you know, sociologically, relationally, emotionally, rationally. There's so many things to, to really consider, which is important. But further, it takes faith to reject God. I was glad that Ben went with the problem of evil and suffering. I was told by a couple philosophers that that debate ended 20 years ago, but I'm glad Ben brought it back up. I know suffering is the toughest one. Suffering is not, but the problem of evil, that's what I was told. Alvin Plantinga and those boys. But it takes faith to reject God. And what I mean by that is starting off with the suffering and evil piece. You know, you, you, there's so many examples where, for example, one is if I told my two-year-old right now that she had to suffer because she was, she did something really bad and she was in timeout. And she would ask and she wouldn't understand. She still doesn't understand why she has to go to timeout. What exactly is doing something wrong? And so she's getting punished. She's going through a form of suffering, especially for a two-year-old that she doesn't understand, that she doesn't know what could potentially be behind it. And after a while, I explain it to her, and she begins to understand some of it. And I think we get partial explanations from God. He's an omniscient being. We are very finite in who we are and our understanding of things. And so we need to leave room for God's knowledge and potentially, see, here's where the faith comes in, because automatically Ben thinks that we need to have a total clarity, a complete understanding of why God allows suffering to happen. And that when suffering happens and we don't know why, then there could be absolutely no good reason for it. Okay. Philosophically, that's just completely bunk. And so, you know, one example, another example would be in, in Alvin Plantinga's in a pump tent, for example, St. Bernard, you're going to go into a, a pump tent. You're going to see a St. Bernard, but no CMs coming through the screen, which I do with some camping up here in, you know, in the East coast you're not going to see them and you're not going to see the reasons for them and, and that you're getting bitten and you don't even realize why or how you're getting bitten. So we have to leave that. And there takes faith again from Ben to say, to make this incredible leap of God has to make it clear to me why any and all types of suffering occur. So I think that's a large leap. I think he also, not him specifically, but many atheists, I hear the exclusive claims of Christianity are tremendously offensive, for example. So this is more, my faith in God and who God is, Jesus Christ. And there can't just be one way. Well, how do you know that there can't just be one way? I think you're being influenced by your Western culture, which says, no, be as egalitarian as you possibly can, have absolute freedom. And what that basically means is all decisions are good. You judge for you what's right for you, and I'll judge for me what's right for me. And hey, in a pluralistic society that's relativistic, everything's good, man. Everything's equal. And don't you dare judge me and tell me my ideas are wrong. So those are some leaps of faith that I oftentimes hear atheists make when it comes to theism. Now, the problems you get, obviously, there's many if you posit atheism. I mean, they're endless. You know, think about this one. The belief that there was nothing and nothing happened to nothing and then nothing magically exploded for no reason, creating everything. 
And then a bunch of everything magically rearranged itself in the most perfect way, perfect way. So fine tuning, you could have touched on that, imaginable for no reason whatsoever into self-replicating bits, which then turned into dinosaurs. That is atheism. It starts with the virgin birth of the universe. Ben and I both believe in virgin births. I believe mine makes a little bit more sense. He believes his makes a lot more sense. So the problems you have without it. Well, you can start with, gosh, matter, mind, and morality. Matter, mind, and morality. Think about matter. Ben named some of it. I believe you absolutely, everything that has a beginning needs a cause. The universe has a beginning, according to the Big Bang, studies that I've seen. So it needs a cause. Ben goes with something called the infinite regress. And we know that the infinite regress is not possible. We never see that in our experience whatsoever. He didn't call it the infinite regress, but he called it just something behind everything, creating everything. No, there needs to be something outside of space and time that created what we have here, which is space and time here on earth in our universe. That's crucial. Then you look at the constants, for example. I mean, endless amounts of constants in nature, the mathematical constants, the gravitational pull, you think of the variables, the values. There, there's so many different ways to look at how this place is just balanced on a razor's edge. And it looks like, clear to me, it looks like um, Lightfoot out of MIT, Professor Lightfoot out of MIT, who wrote in Harper's Magazine that science has a major crisis of faith when it comes to fine tuning, because everything looks like someone prepared this place for us to show up. And the only efforts I hear from people to try and debunk fine tuning is physical necessity and multiverse. And if you look at both of those, they are comical. So that's matter. How about morality? Moral absolutes. You know, I hear atheists try and get out from underneath this one all the time. They'll talk about relativism or they'll say we get our morals from the powerful or they'll say we get our morals from those around us, maybe social contract theory, or they'll say we get our morals, you know, we all decide our own morality, or they'll say, you know, evolution decides our morality, which perhaps Ben goes more so with. So there's so many different types, or my favorite, the, the one that I love atheists skirting with, with oftentimes, I was with a professor at New Jersey not too long ago, you know, he, he loves going with the whole moral Platonism. So let's say that there's some type of moral transcendent value out there and we'll just call it justice you know it just just exists it's not have a personal god it just it's up there floating somewhere even though we know justice is kind of personal it feels pretty germane to our lives but somehow that's how we can get rid of god and it's just floating up there well again you need a personal being in order to have something like justice that makes a lot of sense and then you need the obligation something above our culture i found it really interesting that ben went to gender roles yes Yes, moral absolutes, moral obligation and duties make way more sense when it comes to gender roles than if you don't have a God and moral duties and obligation. Because how are you going to convince certain people in certain tribes of Africa that I know who their gender roles are very different from yours, Ben, extremely different? If I had to guess, I, I would hope. How are you going to go down there with your atheistic white Western approach and try and convince them? that your understanding of gender roles is correct. No, it's just a feeling. And, and that's very ethnocentric of you, potentially. I'm not saying this is you, I'm, I'm just hypotheticals here. 
very ethnocentric and very elitist. You know, get out of here with your try your effort for egalitarianism when it comes to gender roles. That's there's there's no place for that. It's it's completely unfair, and I think that's very judgmental of you personally. So then, lastly, it comes to the mind, consciousness, beauty, meaning. Gosh, we can go on and on. Reason, atheism can't touch any of these. Can't can't even come close. Consciousness, look at Tom Nagel, for example, out of NYU. He's an atheist. He says, when it comes to naturalism as an atheist, he has such a major issue with consciousness, doesn't make any sense from the materialistic, atheistic worldview. He says, and I don't think it'll make sense for a long, long time, maybe, maybe never. And basically, there's different qualities when it comes to consciousness. Your ability to have a very self, you experience a self-consciousness. Your ability to do abstract, complex, mathematical problems, your ability to have memories, to be able to remember things in the past and then imagine things in the future that could be better and different. Your ability to, gosh, you know, dabble in the existential or have the very debates that we're having right now. Then you go over to your reasoning capabilities, everything about evolution and adaptation and where we're at now. And I believe in evolution. Everything about it is geared towards survival. Nietzsche talked about this when it comes to, and I didn't know this about Nietzsche until recently, actually, I was pretty impressed. He said, if you're an atheist, and he's you know, our atheist prophet, at least he's mine. He said that if you're an atheist, then you're gonna have a tough time holding to a certain type of truth and a very tough time holding to a type of certainty in your own ability to reason and to search for that truth. He said, it's near impossible. Another guy, Tom Nagel, talked about that as well. Alvin, Alvin Planica has talked about that. So again, evolution is geared towards survival. I mean, I mean flee, fight, not truth. And so oh, one minute. Ben, ben having, me, having this conversation with me right now is kind of ridic ridiculous because evolution set him up in a way to survive, not to seek after truth. And so in many ways, a highly evolved monkey mind, you need to start doubting it, your ability to even grasp and attain truth because it's geared towards survival and that's it. And I see consensus with most atheists in that regard and theists. That's the one area of consensus I see. All right, thank you, Stuart, for that opening uh, statement. And we're about to kick it into open discussion. I just wanna let everybody know again to uh, send your super chats in. Uh, Again, super chats go to the top of the list, but uh, send your questions in if you'd like. Uh, we may not get to all the questions, but uh, super chats do go to the front of the list. And um, if the questions are insults, they won't be read, of course. Um, the like, share, and subscribe button, please uh, don't forget about those. The speakers, their links are in the description. If you like what you're hearing, please don't forget to hit those and check them out if you like what you're hearing. Um, and uh, thank you again to Amy for helping me out tonight. Thank you to our moderators in the chat for doing such a wonderful job. I see that you guys are working really hard right now. And um, with that, we will go ahead and kick it into the open discussion. Gentlemen, the floor is all yours. Yeah, so uh, I'm very surprised when you said that the you know, problem of evil was solved 20 years ago. Uh, and, you know, because it, it seems to be, right? I mean, the most recent polling data I could find uh, Seventy-two percent of philosophy professors are atheists, and I think about another twelve percent are agnostics. Uh, and I think the problem of evil is like one of the main reasons. Now, I'm not saying 
you should agree because the majority is already always right. Nothing like that. But I think that does go to uh, it, it not being something that most people are satisfied has been solved. I think what Alvin Plantinga says about it is, well, it's not logically incompatible that uh, there could be undeserved suffering and a a morally perfect God. And the uh, the example that he uses to show that it's not logically incompatible as well, uh, if you think the free will defense works, which by the way, I don't even think works for humans, but let's put that aside. Uh, If you think the free will defense works for humans, then it could be that natural disasters and all this stuff that the free will defense doesn't seem to touch. Uh, all those other forms of suffering, Planica says it could be that that's like demons exercising their free will. It's like, yeah, okay, it could, but this takes us right back to inference to the best explanation. Anytime you have evidence against something, it's always possible that there's some crazy explanation that you never would have thought of that explains it away. Like, you know, oh, uh, this person is on, you know, is on camera over here when the crime was committed. So this looks like an alibi but it could be that it was a deep fake and that the fingerprints were faked and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. That's not the question. I'm not taking a leap of faith to say that there couldn't be an explanation. I'm just saying, if we're looking at the evidence and trying to see, you know, does it seem to be the case that given the evidence, it's more likely that there is or is not a morally perfect God. It seems to me that the evidence would suggest that's more likely that there's a not. And, you know, you talked about beauty, and I would just say before I throw it back to you that the uh, that sure you know that uh, that you know beauty and goodness and all that stuff. If we were debating the possibility of the existence of a perfectly morally evil like Lovecraftian hell god, then all of those things would be problems. You know, how do you explain beauty? How do you explain puppies and sunsets? But of course, nobody suggested that, right? We're talking about whether there's a morally perfectly good god, and it seems like the problem of evil is going to be a big problem there. Absolutely. The problem of evil and suffering is still the biggest issue I typically find in one-on-one conversations with believers and non-believers. From an academic level, you'll be hard-pressed to go to too many debates that are simply focused on the problem of evil now, though. I do, so I, I could possibly get on board with your statistics there, 72% of philosophers, although I hear there's a major shift I think it's the religious professors that are growing in atheism. Philosophers are actually, there's a shift and there's, they're growing in theism. Now, scientists, for example, right out of the scientific journal, so I don't think they're lying. The majority of them are atheists. They said that 40%, 40% of Harvard scientists are theists, 40% are atheists, and 20% are semi-agnostic. So, so those stats are fascinating, but those change overnight sometimes as well. Now, I think in academia at certain, at at the universal, in terms of, gosh, universally speaking at at colleges, I would say the majority, I mean, there's a reason why 75% of high school students lose their faith when they go to college because at, in the halls of power, it is still secular, but I digress. That's a different issue. I want to talk more so about, you kept talking about the invisible giant. And I usually yeah, hear so, the, Loch Ness, so, the Loch Ness monster. And just to touch sure, on but, 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 but it back here to you in okay. one second. All right, all right, all right. Just to clarify briefly, yeah. I, am, I don't want to defend or, or call you out on that. I'm okay with that. With in the what? sense of it's, it's the invisible friend sitting on my left. Like, sure, I, I could go there. I've never heard a voice, for example. But I'm talking more so like Stephen Evans, the great philosopher down there at Baylor. 
he says it's it's not a question of the invisible giant of the Loch Ness monster. It's the character of the universe and the world and the human being that we're talking about here, and whether that makes the most sense in connection to positing a god or not. It's not just jumping to oh we're going to make up some Loch Ness monster and somehow, you know, we'll find him over there in Scotland somewhere, potentially, or, or the pink elephant, whoever it might be. No, no, it's the character of this place and how it makes sense. I have a connector to that, but I'll let you go first. Okay, so I, I think you might be slightly misunderstanding the point about the invisible giant. You know, it's, it's not an insult. It's not like a, you know, saying like, oh, this like, no, no. invisible friend. The point is just saying that um, if, as I was arguing in the opening statement, you know, there's no evidence for the existence of God, then you might say, well, there's no evidence for, but apart from the, maybe the problem of evil, which again, most of the people who think most about it think is very unsolved. Uh, but, the, uh, but apart from maybe the problem of evil, you might think that there's no evidence against the existence of God. And then the question is, if that's the case, should you be an agnostic or an atheist? And thinking about the invisible giant example is the kind of thing that leads me to think uh, that uh, atheism would make more sense than agnosticism. Uh, but, but because you do think that, I mean, I, I do want to, you know, because you mentioned a lot of interesting stuff in your statement, you know, and I do want to talk about fine-tuning and moral relativism and other things, but just to stick with the problem of evil for a second, because you are so confident that there's a good answer to it, I, I mean, I didn't quite hear what it was, right? I mean, like, like are, are you somebody who thinks like the, the free will defense, you know, is, is what really like helps us, you know, get out of the problem of evil or, or, or what do you think it is? I think it's the same reason with C.S. Lewis, the most reluctant atheist and probably the most well-known one there at um, Oxford and, and Cambridge Theist. became a Christian because he originally said, there's no way I could become a Christian because of the problem of evil. But they said, hold on a second. Wait, why am I so bothered by it to begin with? There is no God. If there is no ultimate standard of justice and goodness, then why am I bothered by evil? Do I need a lobotomy because I'm crazy because I think it's so bad and it's just natural? It's kind of like Andy Dillard at uh, Pilgrim. What, what is it? What was that best? You're the academic. Um, Pilgrim at Tinker Creek. When she was out there looking at how nature attacked each other in such a vicious kind of way, she basically said, why don't I just get involved here and say, this is not evil. This is not a bad thing. This is just how it is. Am I the one who needs the lobotomy? Because I think that this is so nasty and brutish. And so C.S. Lewis became a Christian because of the problem of evil. And I know many people who have. So it's not so easy just to say, by the way, and the reason why people oftentimes say that the problem of evil academically, philosophically, the debate is over, is because yeah. simply of one man, Alvin Plantinga, who said philosophically, you cannot be certain that God does not have good reasons to allow evil and suffering. That's what, what did it. That's just what I've heard. Well, I can, I can okay, okay. I, I've, for what it's worth, I've spent the last 20 years of my life out around academic philosophers, and you're the first person I've ever met who thinks the problem of evil is like solved and that's not an issue anymore. Uh, I, I, I think what Alvin Plantinga, yeah, and I kind of already addressed what he said. I, I think that his point is that it's not logically impossible that there's some explanation, uh, you know, and so he thinks that if we have, because he believes that we have good reasons to believe in the existence of God, and it's at least possible that there's some explanation that we can't think of for the problem of evil, then that's not a good enough reason not to believe it. But that's very different from saying that 
you know, this doesn't give us a good reason to think uh, probably there's no God unless, uh, unless you can come up with a better argument uh, for, uh, for the existence of, uh, of God. And I didn't, again, I did not really hear an explanation from you. I heard it's, it's possible, which of course it is, the same way that, you know, if we have fingerprints and, you know, DNA evidence from bloodstains, that, uh, I don't know, you know, O.J. Simpson committed a murder, it's possible there's some elaborate conspiracy we can't figure out to fake all that evidence, but, you know, probably not. It's possible that there's some, uh, that there's, there's some reasons that we can't figure out, but probably not. And all I really heard you say, as far as reasons to think that this evidence should be disregarded, is, well, you think that it's, like, incoherent to talk about the problem of evil if you're an atheist, because if you're an atheist, you should just be a moral relativist or something, which again, is something that you're gonna find very few atheists who would agree with you that atheism entails moral relativism. Uh, that same study from David Chalmers from 2014 that showed that 76% uh, of philosophers are atheists, about another 12% are agnostics, uh, showed that at least a good 56% are moral realists, you know? So mathematically, you know, there's gotta be an awful lot of overlap there. And I think the reason, in fact, the reason that even a lot of uh, philosophers who are theists, you know, who are even maybe believing Christians or Muslims or Jews, don't really think that you can make sense of the idea that you need God to make sense of morality is the Euthyphro dilemma, which has been known for, you know, 3,000 years since uh, Plato, which, you know, is, uh, is the dilemma where Socrates is arguing with this ancient Greek holy man, uh, Euthyphro, and he asks, uh, you know, and Euthyphro says that the holy is that which the gods love, and Socrates says, well, do the gods love it because it's holy, or is it holy because the gods love? So to translate to these terms, uh, if you say, well, uh, we could somehow make sense of justice more easily given a personal God, I mean, I don't see any connection there. In fact, I think if anything, uh, the idea that you could make sense of uh, justice by talking about a personal God makes no sense on its face, because you end up just being a different kind of moral relativist. Uh, if, you're, if you're saying, well, this is just or unjust because God wants it, right? Then you're saying it's just arbitrary. God doesn't have a good reason. So if God decided that, you know, that, that torturing small children for fun uh, was morally just, well, if all that it means for something to be morally just is that God wants it, then you'd have to admit that in that scenario, torturing small children for fun is just. If, on the other hand, God wouldn't like that because it's unjust, that it has to be unjust for some reason other than God not wanting it. And uh, I, I've got to say, I mean, this is something I've never really heard, uh, you know, maybe you'll be the first, but I mean, I've never really heard a, a good response to this. It seems like if you want to reject, you know, moral relativism, which you should, moral relativism is a terrible position, uh, then, uh, then you can't believe that things are morally just or unjust because of what some personal being thinks. No, and that's why I totally buy into the third alternative, which God wills something because he is good. So God's own nature is the standard of goodness and his commandments to us are expressions of his very nature. Uh, so in short, I mean, our moral duties are determined by the commands of a just and loving God. So moral values in, in nowhere, they're not dependent, rather independent of God, because God's own character defines what is good. So, so he's essentially compassionate, fair, kind, all these attributes, impartial. His nature is the moral standard, though, determining good and bad. And so his commands necessarily reflect, in turn, 
his moral nature. Therefore, they're not just arbitrary, like you had said. The morally good and bad is determined by God's nature, and the morally right and wrong is determined by his will. So, so if God wills something because he is good and something you know, is right, it's because God wills it. You know, this view of morality, it's, um, it's been eloquently defended by many people. You know, Robert Adams, you know, William Alston, Philip Quinn. So I don't, don't know your so, big so, problem with it. I don't hear atheists. Well, this is, this is another one that I find very hackneyed because I don't. I mean, I'll, I don't I'll, I'll tell you if you want to hear it. A lot of atheists and this one doesn't come up. So, so you, you, you just hit one that I never hear anymore. And I hit one that you never hear too. So we're in good. Okay. Well, 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 you said you didn't know why I rejected. I'd be very happy to tell you, which is that I think that if you say, well, God's commands are arbitrary because God commands, you know, God wouldn't command that because God is good. Well, the question is, we need to say that God is good. Why does God's nature count as good? And you've just pushed the problem back one short step. You say that God's nature is compassionate, kind, impartial, and you might have used another adjective I missed. But the question is, why is it morally good to be compassionate, kind, and impartial? Are, are, those, are those characteristics morally good because God has them, or does God have those characteristics because they're morally good? And if you say that God has those characteristics, you know, God is compassionate because it's good to be compassionate. God is kind because it's good to be kind. God is impartial because it's good to be impartial. Then being kind and compassionate and impartial are morally good for some reason other than that they're God's nature. And that reason is going to be every bit as available to the atheist or the agnostic as to the theist. If, on the other hand, you say, well, what finds kindness and compassion and impartiality as being good is that they're God's nature, uh, then you've got a different problem, which is that if God were not compassionate but cruel, uh, you know, if, if, if God were not impartial but, you know, but, but petty and jealous, et cetera, then cruelty would be morally good. And if you don't think that cruelty would be morally good if God were cruel rather than kind and compassionate, then that's because you think that being kind and compassionate are good completely independently of God being kind and compassionate. Sure. I mean, again, you need a standard, though. You need a straight edge. And I would love to hear your straight edge. And so we all have a, you oh, and but, I would have but, 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 a similar <laughs> understanding of goodness. And again, it's, it's God wills something because he is good. And so he's the straight mm -hmm. edge. And it's his own nature is the standard of goodness. And his commands, those commandments, they, so, they are. So, so, so if his, his nature is the standard of goodness. Well, let's let him finish his. Uh... I think oh, Dr. Sorry, ben, you I'm just sorry. finished. You're right. My bad. Okay, my bad. Yeah. So again, it, it's our moral duties are determined by the commands of a just and loving God. And that makes, that makes all the sense in the world because values cannot be independent of this good God or they become relativistic and we're just shouting over each other. That's exactly what goes on in the political realm right now. We have no basement of shared understanding of moral values anymore. Instead, everything, it just seems so relativistic. So it just breaks out into all different types of in-groups that are just viciously attacking each other. See, this is the, the very issue right now that you're talking about. Okay. Uh, if you say God's nature is the straight edge, I mean, you never answered my question, but let me try to ask it in a different way and then maybe we can move on to fine tuning. Uh, well, if God's How do you know what good is, is right? 
is, is the straight edge. If, if we know that these, that the, if the way that we know that kindness and compassion and impartiality or whatever that other adjective was are good is because God has them, then if God had different characteristics, if God was cruel and capricious and all the rest of those things, then those things would be good. And that sounds a lot like moral relativism to me. The problem with moral relativism was saying that whatever your culture says is good because it's what your culture says. So in your example about the African tribe, or I would say the, uh, the American megachurch, uh, that has uh, terrible values on gender uh, that, you know, that you can't tell them that's wrong because that's their culture. Like we agree that that's a silly view that we shouldn't be cultural relativists. But the problem with cultural relativism is that you're checking your moral sense at the door and you're just saying, well, you know, whatever some culture says, no matter how terrible it is, must be good for that culture. That's the same problem as saying that whatever characteristics God happens to have are good because God happens to have them. I mean, surely we can imagine a hypothetical where uh, there was a God who was not kind and compassionate. There was a God who was cruel and, cruel, cruel and capricious. And sometimes at this point in the argument, people like to say, well, that wouldn't really be God. There'll be some other being. Okay, fine. So call him Shmod, right? If Shmod created and ruled the universe and Shmod was uh, cruel and capricious, uh, would it therefore not be morally good to be kind and compassionate? To me, that sounds like saying that this of the war and brainwashed us all into agreeing with them, then therefore like Nazi beliefs would count as morally good in that world. Like, you know, in that world, you might have a prudential reason to do what Schmad wanted, right? Which is that you don't want to be punished or whatever, but you wouldn't have any moral reason not to do it. And similarly, I would say, that whether or not God exists has absolutely nothing to do with whether moral realism are true. Those are very separate questions. Um, but I, I do want to, if it's okay, right? Like, like I know we could spend forever on this, but if it's okay, I do really want to talk about fine tuning because you brought that up in your opening. Yeah, you pick the first two. I'm going to pick the third. <laughs> sure. Deal, I know I'm supposed deal. to be on the okay. hot seat. Let me get the third though. I mean, we sure, can go sure. fine tuning. Can... It's, it's interesting, but like you said, neither of us are astronomers. So we're only going to get yeah, so yeah, far yeah. on that one. But well, well, I, I, I don't think we have to be astronomers. So the first, okay, wait, wait, okay, wait, wait, right. wait, so, wait, hold on. I want to go back to what you just said right there because your little, sure. your little prod at the church is fascinating. Your good friend Martin Luther King Jr. would smack you right now because because of that little. Would, would he? Because I don't think he would. He I would think not he would say recognize... to that church become less religious. He would say through all of his writings, become more religious, become more Christian, he would say. Letters, letters did I, are burning did in I, jail. Did, did I you say they should be it. less religious? You, you I, I mean, the, letters, the letters to the letters become to the Birmingham jail is, is directed at... How about, uh, have you read a stone at, of hope? At, 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 have you read a stone of hope? I do want to hear from you guys. <laughs> Letter from the Birmingham Jail is directed at pastors who are opposed to the civil rights movement, who are the equivalent for the 1960s of those right-wing megachurches for today. I have nothing against Christianity. Uh, depends entirely on your interpretation of Christianity. Some Christians uh, find good moral values there. That's great. Some Christians interpret it and find terrible moral values like the sex megachurches. Hold on. I, I, that's, that's getting off track. Let, let's, 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 let him, let's let him finish his thought really quick. Just let him finish his thought real quick. Oh, yeah, sorry, go ahead. My, sure. My... I, uh, sure. I'm not I'm not telling anybody 
you know, I mean, look, I think Christianity is, is false. It's based on a false metaphysical presumption. Uh, but I'm happy to agree to disagree with people about philosophy if they're on the right side of history, like Martin Luther King was, as opposed to being on the wrong side of history, like the sexist megachurches that I was just talking about. Okay, so you were yeah, saying I mean, that that wasn't the point. Go ahead. Yeah, you, you were going off in different directions that I, I don't necessarily disagree with. My, my whole point was, I mean, Martin Luther King Jr. on more than one occasion said that those white racists who are claiming to pull certain passages out of scripture, slaves obey your masters, in order to, to have racist tendencies. He said, no, I don't think they should throw away their Bibles or their Christian faith. They should become more Christian. And, start, and then he said, you know, let justice roll down. There's a reason why he's quoting scripture and saying that, because he's saying they're totally misunderstanding what the scriptures are talking about. And then you read A Stone of Hope, it's a totally secular academic book, where he talks about how it was the white pastors and black pastors who were together believing in Christ, who actually stood for change that was able to increase and sustain all the beatings that they received, rather than those secular people who just had, hey, it's a good idea if we do this, but it's not Christocentric in our ability to have the greatest resource to deal with suffering because we worship a suffering God, Jesus Christ. That's why MLK Jr. said, okay, now we have a real resource and motivation to be able to push through racism, to be able to push through suffering. And that's why we're not going to stand and respond in a retaliatory way, but instead for peace, because the only single religious leader or philosopher who's made an incredible change over the last 2000 years is Jesus Christ, who he was completely new to the scene when it came to forgiving your enemies and love and egalitarianism. And that is what you stand for and your humanistic values, I am sure. It's what I stand for. And we are still riding the fumes of what Christ has set. So I want to push you, though, on, you know, Francis Crick, for example. We'll, we'll kind of go mm -hmm. into the mind, if, if, if you will, if you're up for that. So consciousness, you know, reason. You yeah. brought up beauty. So I thought we'd go to beauty. Um, you know, just to start us, Francis Crick, leading molecular biologist, when he talked about, you know, your joys, mm -hmm. your sorrows your memories, your ambitions, your sense of personal identity and free will are in fact no more, no more than the behavior of a vast assembly of nerve cells and their associated molecules. Do you really believe that you would say? Uh, so I think, so first of all, I don't wanna let what you said before go, go by. I, I think that deserves a response uh, about Martin Luther King and all that. Martin Luther King, uh, well, you know, his interpretation of Christian beliefs uh, and the Bible and all of that was pro-civil rights. Plenty of other people's interpretation of those things was anti-civil rights. I don't, I don't think that one of them was right and one of them was wrong. I think it's a big, messy, contradictory you know, tradition. There are lots of passages you can find in both directions. And because I don't believe in any of this, I don't have to say one of these is the one true faith and the other one isn't. I think they're, you know, I think they're just different interpretations of something with plenty of fodder for both. But as far as the idea that only people who are Christians were standing for civil rights, that's just not historically accurate whatsoever. I mean, if you go back to like a, you know, a decade or two before the letter to the Birmingham jail, uh, you know, there was exactly one predominantly white organization in the United States uh, that was prioritizing civil rights and integration, taking risks of that cause. Uh, and that was the Communist Party. You know, those people were mostly atheists, and a lot of those people worked with Martin Luther King later. So I, I, I think that the idea that there aren't atheists, you know, who, who work for that is is just completely wrong. Oh no, that's not what but I'm as saying. As far as 
Uh, okay, well, or, or that they weren't willing to suffer as much for it. I don't, I don't think any of that is true. I think that they have, that there are people who, um, you know, from all faiths or no faith, you know, who were willing to do that. But, but on Francis Crick and, and the mind question, uh, yeah, I mean, I don't think that, I think that's a completely separate question from atheism. I think that whether you think that, um, you know, that, that minds are, um, are just, you know, brains, you know, mental states are just brain states, or there's something like functional states of brains, you know, I'm a little agnostic about that. It's a complicated subject. I don't claim to have a well-worked out answer, but I don't think, I think any answer is completely consistent with saying there's no God, but, but I assume just, just, just so I'm clear about this, because this actually is interesting and does go straight into exactly what I was, I was curious about, uh, that you, you know, I assume that your position is, is dualism, that you think that, you think that minds are not just like physical, you know, like like physical systems or anything like that, that, you know, that we really, what's doing the thinking and the feeling and all of that is this, you know, immaterial thing that happens to be hooked up to a physical body, but doesn't have to be. That's your position or no? That would be mine. And your buddy, Chris Hitch, would, would not have that position. Just like when he was on the gurney, when he was dying from cancer, that great story of him looking at the doctor's face and say, stop telling me that your body is in a lot of trouble and dying and in pain for this, that, and the other reason. He said, stop saying your, just call me body brain. And that is tremendously consistent. And it's connected to what Francis Crick is saying. And he would applaud Hitch on that. And so do I. And that's why so many atheists who I see are not intellectually consistent. I'm not impressed by Tom Nagel says he sees it all the time. They'll just go along with whether it's human rights, justice, whatever it might be. And they'll say, oh, yeah, we've got a great reason for it. But they won't state what that reason is or they won't give one. Instead, it's just, again, saying, hey, I'm not going to dig into the why. I'm just saying I'm going to do it. OK, well, uh, I think I have. Uh, said the why I care about compassion and kindness and justice in themselves. You only care about them because you happen to think that those are the features that God had. And if he had some other features, I guess you would care about those, which seems totally amoral and relativistic to me. But uh, the why do reason you care I'm so, for I'm so the reason I'm so fascinated by this that your answer to the mind question yeah. is because I actually I actually think this gets right into fine-tuning because if you say oh well this universe seems to have been arranged specifically for us right i mean the the usual problem with that and i think it's a very good objection is to say well you know that's like saying because you got dealt a you know a particular card it couldn't have really been a random shuffle because there's only a one in 52 chance uh but of course that argument doesn't work because no matter what card you got uh you know there's only one in 52 chance uh, and there'd be a hundred percent chance that you get that card if it was, uh, if you know, if the dealer was was cheating, the equivalent of conscious design. And you know, it doesn't matter that it's you know one in fifty-two. It could be one in fifty-two million or billion or trillion or Googleplex, and the argument would still apply. But the bigger thing, right? So Neil Sinababu at the National University of Singapore has a fun paper about this, is that if you say, well, the reason that these you know physical constants have to be fine-tuned in this way, the reason that God would want that is that he wants specifically us to exist because he wants to be in communion with us. Well, uh, what specifically us be? Creatures with this particular physical makeup or creatures that have minds and, you know, and, and, and can, 
uh, and and can have you know morality and guilt and be in communion with him and all that stuff. Well, if you're a dualist, if you think that uh, we're actually immaterial minds that just happen to be hooked up to physical bodies, then you can't use the fine-tuning argument. Uh, that doesn't make sense anymore because if you're a dualist and you think, well, it just happens to be that this particular matter is what our minds are hooked up to, but they could be hooked up to anything, then you know, you could have all those physical constants be totally different and whatever existed could have minds. You know, you could have sentient electrons and those could uh, and those could be in communion with God. You could have sentient black holes and those could be in communion with God. Uh, you know, if you're a dualist, the fine-tuning argument doesn't make sense anymore. I don't I don't I don't see how it, it still doesn't. Why, why why can it not still make sense? If this place balanced on a razor's edge, you throw out any illustration you'd like in terms of the amount of cards you're dealt, say a hundred mm -hmm. times over, the the shot of the gun from across the entire universe where the bullet has to land within a half inch of a certain mark. Like, like these are the chances we're dealing with. Or you take the illustration of the the 20 marksmen experts who are lined up just 10 feet away from the person that they're supposed to execute and they all miss somehow. These are the percentages we're dealing with. And I'm not saying it's, I, I'm saying it's outside of matter and mind. It's, it's, it's like a separate question that I, I don't know how you're pulling that because never do I hear atheists try and connect those to the fine tuning and the mind and matter. I, I always hear they're going to try and go multiverse or physical necessity. Well, it's, it's not, it's not, it's not original to me. Uh, like I said, it's Neil Sinababa, but also like just to be clear about the connection, right? Sure, yeah, yeah. it doesn't Put matter. It doesn't. It doesn't matter how long the odds are. That's the first point. That you could say instead of a fifty-two card deck, this could be a fifty-two trillion card deck or a fifty-two Googleplex card deck, and it would still be true that no matter which card you're dealt, there would only be a one in fifty-two trillion or one in fifty-two Googleplex chance of getting that particular card. So it's always going to be a bad argument to say, well. If it was a random shuffle, there would only be a one in 52 trillion chance of me getting this card. Therefore, it probably wasn't a random shuffle because that argument would be good, equally good or equally bad no matter what card were dealt, right? That like, oh, this particular uh, card, uh, there was only a one in 52 trillion chance of whatever, whatever card you got, there would only be a one in 52 trillion chance of, you know, that what wherever those dials were set, you know, for the fine tuning metaphor, uh, there would only be a one in 52 trillion or one in 52 Googleplex or whatever chance of that. So it's an equally good and therefore an equally bad argument, no matter where the dials were set. Now, the only way around that is to say, well, no, because here's the difference, you know, that it wouldn't be an equally good argument if, um, if the dials were set anywhere else, uh, because if the dials were set anywhere else, there couldn't be the kinds of creatures that existed that God could be in, in communion with, that, the, uh, that all that would exist would just be mindless, you know, matter spinning around or whatever, because, because you, if the physical constants weren't set the way they are. But the problem with that is that if you're a dualist, then um, no matter where the dials were set, you could have beings existing in that version of the universe who could be in communion with God. So I mean, like that there's no, uh, you know, it, it, it becomes totally arbitrary. I mean, why should this particular arrangement of physical matter tell us that there's a designer any more than any other possible arrangement of physical matter? Yeah, so that's similar to your evil 
is you you want it seems to me if you go back for example this is connected to your original mm -hmm. argument with evil you mm -hmm. want to rewrite the script in a way where and i don't mean to offend you here where you're playing god because you want the narrative to be completely different like why couldn't he have just set it up this way and it's kind of like when I was debating on this channel once and somebody said I, I could write the Bible. And it, you're not saying it this way. I'm just saying it in a more much more mm. extreme version. I could write the Bible in a much better way. Just easy. Mm. It would be very simple. And so I think, you know, you were struggling with the goodness of God. God is not going to act in a way. We don't have it where he's just evil and he's arbitrarily setting up ways to live, which he's commanding us to act in an evil, vile way. No, the standard of goodness is, is what God is, and that's how it is. And there's no contradiction, again, when it comes to his very character and the commandments coming out and the obligations coming out of his very character. So I think, you know, back to the teleological, you mm. also have to, I mean, again, within the Big Bang, that's where these constants originally were. And if mm. you posit that there was no Big Bang, then you're looking at one in affinity. And one in infinity is, is obviously impossible. And so whatever it may have been, multiverse, physical necessity, or a mind, I, I don't know how, because you said earlier as well in your opening, you said that mm. in terms of Occam's Razor, no, you didn't say Occam's Razor, you talked about yeah, simplicity. Well, yes, God as a mind is, is incredibly simple. And that a mind created the universe is very sim simplistic. Now, the ideas that come out of the mind, those are very complex. But the mind itself, you, you don't have to turn it into this crazy computer that has all these wires coming out of it endlessly throughout the universe. No, it, it's just a mind, a personal mind that created. And that makes way more sense to me than any other alternative. Well, I mean, I think it makes sense to you because, uh, you know, because we have minds, so we project that, you know, onto uh, the cosmos. But I actually think it's totally arbitrary assumption that, you know, whatever uh, created us uh, did it, you know, had uh, had a mind. In fact, uh, I think that if you just say in the broad sense, right, you know, what are the chances uh, that, um, you know, what are the chances that, you know, you would have had, you know, the Big Bang singularity unfold, you know, the, the way it did, uh, I think you're very dismissive for no particularly good reason of physical necessity and multiverse, which are both serious physical theories that I think need a much more serious argument to dismiss them than, than anything that I heard. But let's say for the sake of argument that those are both wrong, you know, that they, uh, so there's only a one in whatever chance. It's not going to be infinite. Uh, you know, I, people who make this argument never say that, but they say it's one over some unfathomably large number. Well, again, two things about that. One, Whatever happened, there would only be a one over that same number chance of it happening. So that's like saying, well, you got a three of hearts, therefore it probably wasn't really a random shuffle. The dealer was cheating because if he was cheating to give you a three of hearts, there'd be a 100% chance of you getting the three of hearts. Whereas if it was a random shuffle, there's only one in 52. But if you got a seven of diamonds or a nine of clubs, you could run the same argument and the same thing here for all however many, you know, 52 Googleplex uh, possibilities. And in fact, uh, if you want to say, well, given the starting assumption, there's only a one in blank chance, then I think we have to compare like to like. So don't just say, well, if there is a God who specifically wants 
this sort of physical matter to exist for some reason that we haven't really heard yet because it can't be to be in community with creatures like us because it could be in communion with sentient black holes but um if you're a dualist but uh but whatever that you know that reason is you know don't do that say look if you're gonna say well um uh, what are the chances that we would be created given you know that we would come into existence given this range of things that could have happened with the big bang then you should compare that to what are the chances that we came into existence given the range of things an all-powerful being could have created. And presumably the range of things an all-powerful being could do is actually going to be much bigger than that unfathomable, you know, sea of possibilities of ways that the Big Bang could have unfolded. Sure. The Big Bang piece, again, if someone's, if there's a Big Bang over there where my door is, mm. I'm going to imagine somebody kicked it most likely that the Big Bang led to somebody. And yes, there's a lot of dead space and time in the universe. You could easily go there and try and make that argument in terms of why would God create so much dead space and time when he's such mm -hmm. a creative, good God, supposedly. But it comes back to, no, the Big Bang, there has to, if there's going to be these types, well, let's, let's shift here because we've, we've already gone here. Well, well, I'm well, guessing well, you're well, not a dualist. I'm guessing you're not a dualist. We're going to stick just on to be, it. Gentlemen. Just, just, to be, just to be clear about that last, about that last point. Yeah. Uh, you know, because, uh, I mean, I think as far as the kick in the door, that was answered in the opening statement. Yeah. That just pushes the question back one very short step, right? What causes God? Uh, we could certainly get into that, but I think it's going to be this structurally identical problem to what causes the Big Bang. But the point about all the possibilities is that if we're comparing like to like, if we're saying, well, you know, given a totally naturalistic origin of the universe, here are all the different things that could have happened with the Big Bang. If there are so many different possibilities, why is this one the one that happened? You have the same problem with God. Well, given the hypothesis that an all-powerful being who could literally do anything created the universe, well, given that, what are the chances that he would have created this particular universe? It's going to be one over actually infinity in that case because there are an infinite number of things that God could do. So I don't see how you can say that there being some incredibly large number of physical possibilities shows that it's really unlikely that there was a purely naturalistic beginning of the universe. We could just as easily say, you know, the sheer number of things that an all-powerful God could do, and what are the chances that an all-powerful God would have done this rather than any of the others? Therefore, it's probably not an all-powerful God. I don't think either of them are good arguments, but I don't think one of them is better than the other. Yeah, and I would say it's better than the multiverse which doesn't have a shred of evidence for physical necessity, the brute fact oh, of it. True. I think you have a very tough time getting around it. Heard atheists talk about that. You know, but back to dualism, because I'm guessing you're an atheistic mm. reductionist. I think well, so you, I, I, you, I, I, believe I, I answered that earlier. Yeah. I, 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 I mean, I said, I, I, I said earlier that I'm somewhat agnostic about philosophy of mind, but that adds it's a completely separate question from philosophy of religion. You know, you could be, uh, you know, you could you could have any position on philosophy of mind, uh, you know, functionalism, you know, uh, reductive uh, materialism, non-reductive materialism, property dualism. So all of these things are consistent with saying that there's no God. Uh, but the, um, you know, but the point um, about, uh, you know, the point about the, uh, you know, the, the Big Bang, you know, is, is, is just that, you know, you can't say well, um, 
there are all these different possibilities. Why did this one happen given the naturalistic origin hypothesis? Therefore, there probably wasn't a naturalistic origin because you could equally say there are all these different universes that could have been created given a theistic origin. Uh, why this particular one? Therefore, there probably wasn't a theistic origin. And also what you said, there's no evidence for the multiverse theory. Again, I think physicists who know more about it than either of us, not all of whom are atheists, by the way, some of whom are Christians, would disagree with you about that. And they would disagree with you about that because they would say that, of course, it is very hard to have direct evidence for or against uh, any of these things, you know, because it's so incredibly theoretical. But uh, the uh, but the you know, multiverse theory that say does is a mathematically elegant way of connecting a lot of empirical dots that we do have, and we can compare that to different theories. And a lot of scientists, not all of whom are atheists or agnostics, would say that this is the best explanation. Now, I don't think either of us is much of a position to weigh in on that one, but I certainly don't think it's a, a serious response to say, well, there's no evidence for that. I, I think you should talk to a physicist about that one. Sure, and, and I've just, like I said, it's anecdotal, but I, I've, I've read it a good amount too from a number of, of atheists. So, but you know, we're, in terms of, I think the dualism issue, if you, for example, were to go, let's just do a little mind game here, because I want to see where mm. you're coming from. If you mm. were to look, if you were to go to your favorite restaurant and say, read on the menu and it says your favorite roast beef, but you just have random marks there of pen and ink. Um, so they're semiotic, but the way obviously they come together, it carries meaning, right? So as an atheist, I mean, how do you begin to explain the, the semiotic dimension in terms of carrying meaning in those marks from purely physics and chemistry in that in that ink because I think personally you cannot explain it from a bottom up you would need a top down just like it makes total sense for an intelligent being God to explain that semiotic dimension that we have here on earth because the fact is that symbols carry meaning and we automatically, every single time we see marks on a page or other forms of semiotics in this world, we posit and argue upwards to a mind. And so it is, it's not a, a mind of the gaps or anything like that. It's just so clear that for a naturalist, a physicalist, any atheist that I know has a very difficult time with semiotics when it comes to dealing with meaning well that's a new one uh so i think that you know there could be two things that you might mean there uh one would be a philosophy of language question like how is it you know that uh that, that words refer to things that's a big thriving debate in philosophy of language uh and i've never heard anybody in that debate including lots of philosophers who are theists suggest that postulating god is somehow going to help with that. But the other question is just an empirical question that like, how is it that our brains process marks as conveying information and, you know, and, and that we associate, you know, the marks on the page with the idea of roast beef. And that sounds more like a question about neuroscience or empirical psychology, cognitive processing. Uh, and I don't see what you think that the God question has anything to do with that, because that's uh, that's just a question of how is it uh, that our brains 
are working and whether you think that our brains evolved to work that way or whether you think that they're created by God to work that way or some combination like you kind of indicated before, um, you know, whatever the right answer is, it's going to be the same answer, you know, regardless of whether or not there's a God. No, it was a, I got it from a Pulitzer Prize winner and then I got it from a, a very gifted did, mathematician did, 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 at Oxford who was a Christian and then another atheist who I believe he was philosophy of science who said, wow, this is actually completely mind altering thinking because I don't know how you don't postulate a God in terms of from a strictly physicalist or naturalist. If you remove any spiritual realm, if you remove God in any kind of way, how are you going to get inks on ink of, you know, an ink pen and what it carries on a page, getting meaning from it, and not postulating up down versus down up. It's crucial to think through how do you carry meaning and that meaning is clearly intangible. It's not a tangible thing. And so for you just to say it's a matter of a word game or semantics or figuring out language, that has nothing to do with the issue whatsoever. Well, I I didn't didn't say any of those things, but I'm very confused. I'm very confused about how you think these two issues have anything to do with each other whatsoever. Uh, I really wish these very impressive people who gave you this problem that I could I could see exactly what they said because all I can say is at least based on the way that you just explained it now, I'm still completely in the dark about what the relationship between this subject of meeting and you know processing inks on paper, ink on papers, communicating ideas, what on earth that's supposed to have to do with the God question. Yeah, you brought up dualism. You brought up dualism, mind, matter. I did. I, I, did. I believe yes. in mind and matter. You strictly believe in matter. And this example was beautifully connected to it in every kind of way. And it has I mean, everything. I brought, I, 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 brought, I brought up dualism, but that's not because whether you're an atheist necessarily says whether you're a materialist or a dualist or what. Those are separate questions. <sighs> I brought up dualism because if you're a dualism, if you're a dualist, then the fine tuning argument doesn't make sense because no matter where the dials were set, uh, whatever existed could be in communion with God. So there's no particular reason to assume that a God who wanted to be in communion with creatures like us would have to set the dials there. Sure. Okay. Thank you guys <laughs> for that spirited discussion, Dr. Burgess, Stewart. Well, let's go ahead and move on to the Q and A. Let me stop that timer and reset it. And uh, let's go ahead and get into it. Shall we? Mm-hmm. We shall. Okay. Um, How long are we going for here, Kaz, on the Q&A? I have 45 minutes. Is that okay? Do you have a hard time out? you need to get out of here? Um, I start to get a little little itchy after a little while with the Q&A. Oh, sorry. But no, yeah. I, I'll, I'll, I'll raise a hand. Don't worry if I, if I got to go to the bathroom or something here. Okay. We'll just try to rip through these as fast as possible. Okay. Um, $20 from Experiments in Prebiotic Chemistry. At Stuart, God hardened Pharaoh's heart in the Old Testament. So the Pharaoh's free will was undetermined, but he couldn't stop the Nazi Holocaust. Explain that one. What was the benefit of allowing Hitler to have free will? Yeah, so Hitler, if you read the text carefully, hardened his own heart. And then, just like connected to Romans chapter one, God eventually giving people over to their desires, God ended up hardening Pharaoh's heart. So go back and read the text. It'll be good for you to read the text a second time, as many times as possible, be in that Bible. 
and you'll see it's it's he hardened through his own free will and then god let him go and it's, it's a searing of the conscience all right thank you so much um another super chat from experiments in prebiotic chemistry for ten dollars at stewart when you define what morality means the definition becomes the objective standard no god required who gets to define what the word purple means you have to read that one again <laughs> oh, okay when you define what morality means the definition becomes the objective standard no god required who gets to define what the word purple means it's totally false i i don't hear anybody say that we all define reality and that's an objective morality no it's, it's a personal feeling you probably have and whether you evolve to have that type of feeling is typically connected with the strong eating the weak and so i would not encourage you to have a, a morality based on love and self-sacrifice I, I don't think that has anything to do with how you're hardwired from evolution i would tell you to take more of a nietzschean approach which is the superman which is don't live out humanistic values. And so the idea of me determining objectively what purple is has nothing to do with objective morality. Okay, thank you so much. Um, another super chat from Experiments in Prebiotic Chemistry for $2. Awesome job, Dr. Ben, brilliant. You have a fan out there. Oh, I don't think that's a question, but thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, actually, that's on here twice. So again, awesome job, Dr. Ben. <laughs> I appreciate uh, it. $2 from Mr. Monster. If God told me to kill, would it be okay to do so? I think that's for you, Stuart. It depends. If you're going to Genesis chapter 22 with Abraham and Isaac, you start to get that feeling. But then you look and Abraham clearly told the servants, we will be back. God clearly told Abraham, I will eventually provide, which was a, a ram in the thicket. And so... No, I, as a mental health therapist, I've dealt with schizophrenics. And if they're told by a voice in their head who they think is God to go out and kill somebody, I'm going to tell them they're probably wrong on that one. It's probably not God. And so did God command the Israelite civilization to judge people groups in, in holy war at times? Absolutely. They were also judged themselves through holy war at different times. But no, I would not take the God that we understand through scripture, especially after the Old Testament was fulfilled and understanding who Christ was and, and an understanding of discipline and punishment having shifted into the New Testament and say individually, go out and kill somebody. God, God just called me to do that. He told me to do that. I'd say get some help. Gotcha. Can, can, okay. can, I, can, I, can I do 10 seconds on that? So, sure, so sure, I, sure. So... I understand saying that if somebody thinks God told them to kill somebody, that they're probably mentally ill, and that seems like a good answer. But um, but that seems like a little bit different from what the question was asking, which is, if it were actually objectively true that God wanted you to do that, would it be good to do that? So in the Abraham and Isaac case, just assume hypothetically that God actually had wanted Abraham to kill Isaac as a sacrifice, and there was no switching up and substituting the ram at the end and all that stuff. In that hypothetical, would it have been right for uh, Abraham to do that? Sure, he's God. Absolutely. God is God. He could, he could do whatever he wants. And if there was some type of 
bigger purpose to it. Obviously the purpose of that story is like St. Augustine talked about. It's like our, our buddy who wrote Infinite Jest talked about, which is have something at the very top of your hierarchy chain when it comes to what you're living for, have that be God in order to live a fulfilling, flourishing life. And that's what God was calling Abraham to. But Isaac, who it took so long for him to, to actually bear Isaac, obviously, had become number one in his life. But no, you look at, again, this comes back to the fulfillment in the New Testament, which we are living by the New Testament, certainly with the Old Testament still in mind. But the fulfillment has, is there now. And you show me where you think Jesus would say, Ben, you go out and kill somebody, and that's objectively right. And I'll be pretty impressed. It's not the question. The question is, if he did, would that be right? And I think I heard your answer was yes. You're going to keep going back to Euthyphro. Euthyphro is your yeah. shtick. You, you love the old well, Euthyphro. I, I mean, I mean, I mean, yeah. I already it's, answered it's, that. It's, uh, well, what else? I, 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 I think it was for Stuart. I, okay. All right. All right. Uh, okay. So, um, again, from Mr. Monster for $2. How did the mark of Cain... I'm sorry. Yeah. How did the mark of Cain survive the Great Flood? Um... This is an, an entirely atheist audience, so I'm guessing that's for me again, right? Just to be clear. <laughs> I, mean, I, mean, I mean, if it's Super for me, I'm going to have to ask. I don't know how I'm supposed to, you know, that, that sounds like a Stuart question a bit. <laughs> I'm going to just Cain. say Cain. How did Cain survive the flood? Well, well yeah. Cain's not alive at that point, right? That's The mark that's, can't survive without Cain himself, so. Right. So I would say you have your um, your calendar a little mixed up there. Okay, let's move on. Uh, $5 from Mike Arayo. I'm sorry if I butchered your last name, sir. Uh, Stuart, can you name five objective morals and duties? And also, can you name those that only Christians can do and no other theist or atheist can? Give me the second half. Can no you name... Um, this is five objective morals and duties that you can name that only Christians can do that no other theist or atheist can. No, I cannot. Gotcha. Um, Four ninety nine by made by Jim Bob. Ben, the tr truth is absolute and conceptual. Concepts require minds. Humans can't create absolute concepts. We can reason an absolute mind. Thoughts. Uh, my main thought is I'm a little unclear about what the questioner is saying. Could you read that again? one more time? Sure. Then I'll take a shot at it. Mm -hmm. Ben, truth is absolute and conceptual. Concepts okay. require minds. Humans can't create absolute concepts. We can reason, reason and absolute mind. Thoughts. We can okay. reason and absolute mind. We can reason in absolute mind. I, I mean, I, I, I think that the core of that is probably that they're just saying that um, things aren't true just because we think they're true, which I completely agree with. I, I, I you know, I'm, I'm not a, any sort of relativist about truth or any of that. You know, I, I think that, uh, I think that some things are objectively true, including that there's probably no God. Uh, and, uh, and that's I not a question of what, I think they're saying that sorry, the, the fact that we can reason an absolute mind 
entails somehow that um, an absolute mind must exist because we can conceptualize it. Okay, so the idea that an absolute mind, meaning like a perfect mind, like God, must exist because we can conceptualize it, that's roughly the ontological argument uh, from, from Anselm and Descartes has a version of this, you know, which is that you know, we have an idea of perfection in our mind and that somehow or another we're getting from this to there their being a perfect being in real life. Uh, so Anselm's version of this is saying that, well, God is by definition the greatest being that we can possibly conceive of. And so if God, if, if God didn't exist, then, uh, then we could actually conceive of a being that's greater than God, which is one just like God, except he had the additional advantage of existing. I don't know if that's what they're asking about or not, but if they are, real quick, uh, I would just say that the obvious problem with that was actually pointed out by somebody who's not an atheist uh, or an agnostic, uh, Guadilla, who's another medieval monk, uh, who said, well, the, you know, the problem is you could just as easily say that the most perfect conceivable island uh, you know, must be one that exists, because if it didn't exist, then it would have the imperfection of not existing, and we can imagine a, you know, more perfect one that existed, or we can run the argument with the most perfect chocolate chip cookie, or, you know, most perfect whiskey, or whatever, and, and, and I, I, I think it would be an equally bad argument in all cases. Gotcha. Thank you so much. Um, from Silver Harlow for $10, the elephant god has a trunk, and Stuart, the elephant, thinks the universe is fine-tuned to create beings with trunks and that it's perfectly obvious. No, I'm sorry. It's perfectly obviously that I should have said obvious. It's perfectly obvious that trunks are necessary to commune with God. So the elephant God has a trunk and Stuart, the elephant thinks the universe is fine-tuned to create beings with trunks and that it's perfectly obvious that trunks are necessary to commune with God. That's for you, Stuart. Was that a question? I think it's kind of like a little statement. Uh, parable. Oh, parable. Yeah. <laughs> sure. I mean, yeah, that could have been how. Again, there are endless amounts of ways God could have created how He could have set this place up. I mean, basically, I think belief in God never comes down without a story about kind of what's wrong with us and what's going to be put right with our deepest hopes and, and desires. Um, I think you get, again, tonight, what we did, I think I gave some, some, I, I poked a little bit of holes in atheism, Ben poked some holes in theism, but I think when it, when it comes to actually believing in God and having a relationship with him, these are just probabilities. These are just clues that I gave tonight. A few of them were arguments, but no, in order to, to get to home base, it, it, you, know, you have to actually grow in a relationship with God, just like a marriage. You know, you, you can only do so much for me looking for my wife when we were dating. Okay, she's got this, got that. Evidence is good here. I don't know about that. Here, here, here. But eventually you have to step in to see if the relationship actually works well or not. So, so we, we can keep ping-ponging as much as we want on arguments Etc. But if it's about really finding out the existence of God and having a relationship with him, this is just hopefully getting some level of probabilities, but, but not driving anything home. Gotcha. Thank you. Um, from Chess119 for $5. Do people actually believe in God nowadays? 
or are they just dishonest with themselves? Also, why not believe in Zeus or the Tooth Fairy? Yeah, so I'll, I'll give Pew Research statistics and some Washington Post, New York Times on this and some sociologists. The world is becoming more religious, shockingly. China is going to be the most Christianized country in the world within a few years, over 100 million Christians. Obviously, they are hiding out mainly in the underground church. Um, atheism is going to be, it's increasing a little bit in the U.S., but it's going to be decreasing worldwide um, fair, a good amount in the next 10 years. And um, I think, you know, Ben, you probably, it's anywhere between 8 to 14%, but it's coming down even below that projected to at least the Pew research I saw. And in terms of the God question, the more specifically, it's a good one because I, religious nons are increasing, but they're hyper-spiritual. So a religious non is typically someone who just stopped going to church. And a religious non still is typically some, some type of theist. And, and so you could say the U.S. has gotten more spiritual. You could say, according to Pew Research, there's pockets in the U.S. of people who've become Christian, and that's growing largely in Protestant denominations, people actually thinking through, because Protestant is typically a very intellectual Christian faith, thinking through the issues, which is very encouraging. But then in the kind of the wishy-washy areas, you know, say Bible Belt, some areas there are decreasing in faith. But you look at Latin America, Africa, China, the world, Christianity is spreading. I mean, it's the largest religion in the world. Islam is spreading a little bit quicker than it. But, you know, if you believe, if, if, I think if you're, you know, if you believe in evolution, you should become a Christian because atheists are dying out because they're not having enough kids. And if you, if you believe the purpose of your life is, is to grow the species and to better the species, then you need to become a Christian, maybe a Mormon. Uh, just, 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 just really quickly, if I, if I could answer the question uh, on, the, uh, on the first part. Yeah, I think plenty of people uh, very sincerely believe in God. I know plenty of them. Uh, I don't know if the slightest doubt about that. I think they're wrong, but you know, I, I think that they sincerely, uh, sincerely believe it, uh, and I can respect that. I think that on the on the question that Stuart is raising, I mean, that's a, you know, what percentage of people, you know, we forecast in the future will believe this or that. I mean, that you know, that's sociology. I couldn't care less about that. I'm interested in philosophy. What's actually objectively true, not what percentage of the public uh, believes what. Uh, and and I think that the um, and I think that the second part of the question is actually a very good question. You know why? Uh, you know does it make any more sense given any of these arguments? You know to to believe the Christian God rather than Zeus or these other things. And 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 I think that it goes back to actually something Stuart said earlier about plausibility structures. That you know that it's it's, it's these other things sound silly because they're culturally alien, but they don't actually make any less sense. And so just to, just to stay within the rules, I guess I'm supposed to finish here. Zeus and all the other ones, there's not a shred of evidence for. And those are the God of the gaps. If you look at the history of Zeus and them, there it was always positing something behind lightning, for example, or fires or something behind the bush rustling. It, it, you don't posit God of the gaps with Judeo-Christian God whatsoever. Now that's another part. And I would say, again, it's crucial to, yes, look at the intellectual, look at the evidence for the faith. The Bible encourages looking for evidence and then taking that step into, you know, I'm going to try this. 
And just at University of Texas, we had a big crowd out there and a bunch of college students, really smart, came to know Christ, not because we necessarily did anything special, but because they started actually thinking deeply through these issues and realized that a lot of their atheistic arguments were totally bankrupt. Gotcha. All right. Thank you so much. Uh, next super chat from pseudo Nim for $2 at Ben. What's being human when you're animal in atheism? I read that verbatim. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I don't think it's the clearest question ever, but I think that probably what they mean by, you know, being human uh, is, uh, is, is something like what's, a, you know, what's a good life or what's the purpose of life or something like that. I mean, because if they really just mean being biologically human, then the question makes no sense. If they, if they mean something like that, then I could maybe understand what they're getting at. Uh, but again, that, that Euthyphro dilemma, uh, you know, we heard no, nothing that even sounded a little bit like it might be a good answer to it tonight. In fact, what we eventually heard was an embrace of one of the two forks of it, which was, yeah, if God tells you to, to, to kill your child as a human sacrifice, you should do it. Uh, which is one of the purest expressions of moral relativism I've ever heard in my life. Uh, I would I would say that uh, compassion, kindness, justice, these are things that I care about in themselves. Trying to be a good person, I care about them in themselves, and not because I believe that anybody's going to like reward or punish me for doing them, which aren't actually moral reasons at all. Can I just take one second on that? I think the questioner was saying you are just an animal if you're not creating the image of God. History, I know you don't like history. History backs it up. Luke Ferry, the, the national bestseller atheist, talked about how basically humans were just considered animals and women were dirt, kids were dirt. Then all of a sudden this idea of being created in the image of God came and that spread and took over the Roman Empire and much of the known world. And if you look what happened there, then all of a sudden people had value outside of what they did, who they were. And that created something where you had egalitarianism where you had people caring about those who are not in their tribe. So they would go into the Roman empire when the plagues were breaking out, when the pandemics were breaking out, Christians that is, saving those of outside groups, bringing them out, dying by doing so, self-sacrificing. And that's where you got the spread, not, not classical Greece, for example. The Greeks did not do it, they did some good stuff. That's where you got all the values you just mentioned that you hold dear, that's where you got them from. And you're just stealing from Christianity. I'm sorry, Ben. All right, well, just, I know philosophy is good to stay, to, stay, to, to stay within the rules. Uh, I'll, I'll take the last <laughs> word on this because it was a question for me, uh, as you did last time. And I will say I love history. I was actually a double major in history and philosophy undergrad, very nearly went to history graduate school. And I think in this case, I might have a slightly better command of it than, uh, than you are, because uh, the Roman Empire was not exactly secular. They believed in a lot of gods, yeah. uh, which were by Christian, the way, no Christian. No, Christian, the pre-Christian. There were many gods, you know, but they believed in many. Do have to let him have the last word on this? Uh, Yeah, yeah, yeah. uh, And um, uh, so, you know, so whatever the moral problems were with them, you know, it certainly wasn't that they were uh, that they were too secular. uh, To uh, to put it mildly, Uh, you know, you you do you do in fact uh, have. A uh, lot, you know, you do in fact have people uh, long before the advent of, uh, of Christianity uh, accepting various versions of things that you would accept 
uh, you would probably want to falsely claim as Christian values, uh, you know, like like Hillel, the Talmud has a version of the golden rule, so does Confucius, you know, long before, yep. uh, you know, long before uh, Christ, these aren't specifically Christian values, you look at different groups of Greek and Roman philosophers, uh, they have moral values, at least, you know, Stoics, Epicureans, etc. They have moral values at least as good as anything that you have in Roman era or medieval Christianity as far as egalitarianism and treating women as dirt or not treating women as dirt goes. I think the record there is overwhelmingly clear that, uh, that increased secularization in the Enlightenment and afterwards is what leads to uh, greater egalitarianism, particularly around gender, that some of the best gender egalitarianism in the world is in the Nordic countries that are also some of the most secular countries in the world. Whereas, uh, you know, in, in both uh, Muslim and Christian cases, intensely religious places uh, tend to be intensely misogynistic. Gotcha. Thank you so much. All right. The next question is from Click Blip Click for $5. Ben, how do you personally ground your belief in justice slash what is right, mm. wrong, morally, etc.? Sure. So uh, I think that, again, uh, if you care about other people, then you care about their dignity and autonomy, and you're not callous in the face of their suffering. And if you ask, okay, but why should you care about other people in these ways? Uh, then that could be one of two things. Why should you, in a moral sense of should, right? In which case, the only possible answer is given in terms of other moral values, or why should you in a prudential sense? Now, in a prudential sense, like why is it going to be, you know, in your interest to do it? Then sure, uh, you know, theism could definitely be relevant there, you know, because you can be rewarded or punished just like if a morally, you know, wicked God existed, you know, you'd be morally rewarded. You'd be rewarded for doing, uh, for being cruel and callous and punished for being kind and compassionate. But that has absolutely nothing to do with morality. I mean, that's like saying that because, you know, you live in Stalin's Russia and Stalin will, you know, will punish you uh, for, uh, you know, for, for being a dissident. Therefore, it's morally wrong uh, to, uh, to, be, uh, to be a dissident. Again, the idea idea that somehow moral values are on a firmer footing because uh, the of word. the views of, you know, the views or thoughts or even the character traits of a, uh, of a personal being uh, is just a recipe for accepting complete moral relativism, that morality is just relevant, is just relative to whatever this being thinks or whatever this being commands or whatever character traits this being happens to have. So if God is kind and compassionate, the kindness and compassion are, are good, that's the straight edge. Uh, whereas if, uh, if God uh, is, uh, is cruel and capricious, then cruelty and capriciousness are the straight edge. You know, if, if you want to be a non-relativist about morality and justice, then you should care about other people for their own sake, rather than because you think that there's some personal being who wants you to care about them. Gotcha. Thank you so much. And our next question is for $5 from Mr. Monster. If God created man in his own image, then that means God looks like an ape. True or false? I think that's for you, Stuart. Uh, false. You want, you want me to go theological? Or we'll just stay false. 
Oh, Kaz, I think you're muted. I'm muted. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, made by Jim Bob for $4.99. Uh, ben, any argument against the existence mm. of God can be used mm. against the existence of truth. Why, if there is no evidence, do you have any faith in truth? Well, I think that the premise is just false, uh, that, the, uh, that I don't know if any of the arguments against the existence of God would apply to uh, thinking the truth doesn't exist. In fact, I can't think of which one the questioner could possibly think that would be true of. Problem of evil, that certainly doesn't give us any reason to think that truth doesn't exist, and, you know, that, uh, uh, that, you know, that there is gratuitous suffering. And by the way, remember, it's a complete cop-out to say, well, you can't explain why suffering is bad if you're an atheist, even if that's true, which it's not. We've been over that again and again and again. But even if it was true, that would that would take you no distance whatsoever to explaining how it is that a loving God uh, would allow this uh, gratuitous suffering. That's completely separate. Uh, that's a completely separate question. So the problem of evil would apply to God, but not to truth. Uh, the uh, the you know the sort of simplicity arguments uh, that, given the evidence that we have. Uh, you know, that if uh, that it's a simpler explanation that there's a no God, than there's a God, you know, that there's, there's, I don't know what the argument against truth along those lines would be. It's not a simpler hypothesis to say that absolutely nothing is true. In fact, that sounds like an incoherent thing to say. So, um, so no, I think the premise of the question is just wrong. Gotcha. Thank you so much. Um, another $5 super chat from Contrarian420. Ben, Aren't you letting the word God obscure a viable theory of the hard problem of consciousness being, as it seems, universal happening? I mean, I'm aren't you letting the it. word God obscure a viable theory of the hard problem of consciousness being, as it seems, universal happening? Yeah, I read okay. the words right. Uh, yeah. Okay, I'm not going to say that that's meaningless, but I, I sure don't know what it means to say that the viable theory of the hard problem, I mean, I know what the hard problem of consciousness is. I don't, I don't know what it means to say the viable theory of it is uh, is universal happening. I, I, I mean, that just seems like, um, yeah, okay, I, I, I'm... I'm not. I I want to. I want to try to give this a go and uh, and uh, and answer it. But uh, I I don't think that I said anything one way or the other about the hard problem of consciousness. So no, I don't think I'm letting the God obscure me from understanding it. I mean, uh, I would love to know what the what the what the questioners you know what the questioner means by that. But right now, I just don't. I think he's saying that the that like the God is a solution. To the hard problem of consciousness, but um, contrarian four twenty. If you'd like to clarify your question, um, uh, moderators, if you could please look out for another message from him and just throw it in the document for me. Um, if, even if he doesn't pay, um, that'd be very helpful. I'm sorry. Um, thank you guys. Uh, moving along, made by Jim Bob four ninety nine. Ben, I didn't say the truth doesn't exist. I say there is no evidence of truth. Why do you have faith in it? Please don't dodge. <laughs> well, please don't dodge is, is an awesome way to, to answer, to, to end a, uh, a question. We should all, <laughs> you know, we should all a, a, end all of our questions that way. You know, that's like, hey, here's a thing that I think uh, that, you know, and don't you agree that it's true? Please don't dodge. Uh, yeah, I, I think that, um, 
I, I don't know what it means to say there's no evidence for truth. I mean, to say that something is true is just to say that things are that way. And so, you know, if I say, you know, snow is white is true, I'm attributing whiteness to snow, and there is evidence for that. There's evidence from our perception. Uh, that's not absolute evidence. We could be brains and vats being subject to complex electrochemical simulation to make us think that there's a thing called snow. We could be disembodied minds being, you know, tricked by a Cartesian demon, but it's pretty good evidence. Uh, and, and I think that that's true of most, you know, of quite a lot of things that there are, I mean, anything that you have, if you have evidence that something, you know, is the case, then you have evidence that it's true. That's what true means. So, um, so I, I, I don't think that there's any coherent way of making sense of the idea that there's no evidence for truth, unless, unless the questioner is just using the word truth in some eccentric way. Gotcha. Thank you so much. Um, from Sunday Warship, is Stuart a psychologist or a psychiatrist? If not, what exactly does he mean by the phrase mental health therapist? Mm, that's a great question. First off, I'm glad Ben went back to suffering. I'll take one second on this because I did not get to answer it during our discussion. Mm -hmm. Suffering and evil. So from the Christian perspective, you got to start with, I don't know. I do not know why there is suffering and evil. Anybody who doesn't start there, yikes. Genesis chapter three, we had a free will. Sigmund Freud was correct. The id is absolutely in there. Sigmund Freud said there was original sin. He said a lot of warped stuff, but that part, I agreed with him. And that opened the door for cosmic consequences, sociological consequences, psychological consequences, brokenness. You can call it sin, natural disasters, divorce, depression. You know, you, you have to have some type of worldview uh, that answers the why to these things. Um, the cross, then I would go to Christianity is known as the suffering religion because you have the actual God dying in the most painful way imaginable on the cross. We get excruciating, the word from cross, crux. And, and so you have a suffering God, which is important in terms of thinking through, okay, he can't be too far from our suffering if he went through that type of suffering himself. So it's not like Buddha who is standing off just smiling during suffering, saying it's an illusion that you have cancer and you're not really dying of cancer. So it's all just, you know, mind over matter. Um, and then lastly, when I'm at the deathbed of people in my, in my job, my profession, if I were an atheist, a person would look at me and say, you are not comforting me whatsoever with your worldview, if you're going to be honest with your worldview. And they could point to things like, hey, I'm not going to have eternal life. I'm not going to see my relatives again. So ever, I, I have a lot of regrets in this life. So there's typically no grace. My regrets, I work too much, didn't spend enough time with my kids. Um, I spent way too much time in trivial pursuits, in anxiety. And then they would also say, hey, there's, there's not going to be a judgment day either. Pretty depressed about that from an atheistic worldview because a lot of people in this world get ripped off. And we know the cycle of abused becomes the abuser. And we see in the Middle East, obviously, you kill my family, I'm coming for yours. And there's these cycles of retribution. You enter in sociologically, right out of Yale, Miroslav Volf, you enter in that there will be a judgment day. You see peace unlike anything you'd ever imagine occur because there doesn't have to be retribution here on earth. And so I see that with people. If I'm an atheist, 
I'm telling you, going to go to somebody's bed saying, hey, no eternity out there. There's not going to be any justice. Sorry. Suck it up, buddy. You just got a, a poor, poor look in this life. You know, others of us got a nice shake. The Christian worldview, I can promise you, makes a lot more sense at that time. Sorry, what was the question though, Kaz? I wanted to answer Ben's because Ben was asking. It was a good. It was a good point he was making. Um, the question is, um, what does mental health therapist mean? Yes. Okay. So, thank you. So, I've done all of my internship practicum hours. I have a master's in mental health. I have a master's in marriage and family, and then I have a master's in divinity. And I do not have a license yet, though. So, I am not a psychologist, and I have to be careful saying mental health therapist. I can get away with it, but I have to define it. So I'm glad you asked me that. My wife is a mental health licensed therapist. So I do a lot of mental health counseling alongside of my other jobs uh, at my church. Gotcha. Thank you so much. And let's move along. Um, I do think we got some more super chats in, actually. And I have accidentally moved away from that window here we are okay from mr monster for five dollars if god is truly omnibenevolent mm -hmm. wouldn't he still forgive me after death even for being skeptical if god loves me why torture me for being skeptical no there, there's there's no torture for being skeptical you got right out of the book of deuteronomy twenty nine twenty nine. He talks about those things that have been revealed to us have been revealed to us. Now chase after them. But there are many other things Moses talks about that have not been revealed to us. Then you have Nathaniel, John chapter one, saying, come and see, come and check me out. You have Jairus saying, Jesus, I don't believe. Help my unbelief. And Jesus uplifts that. He does not scold him for that. You know, you have doubting Thomas. He was, yes, told not to doubt but he's given the, been given the evidence already from those who have witnessed the risen Christ. So Jesus is not saying suspend your critical thinking and don't doubt, not at all. And a lot of atheists will go to that passage and say, hey, Stuart, here you go. Jesus says, you're not allowed to doubt. You're going to hell. And it's just, it's, it's totally, it's just, it's just offensive to the text in every kind of way. So no, yeah, your idea is getting at perhaps purgatory. Why doesn't God let us work off? Or somehow, perhaps other people have talked to me about why aren't there levels potentially in heaven? I believe you got to fall back to the character of God. Is Jesus Christ an all-loving, all-good God who is going to give us a fair shake, each and every one of us, the boy in Malaysia who didn't even hear about him, as well as the kid living across from the Presbyterian or the, or the, the Baptist church? in Indianapolis, who's heard about him, but as, as not seen, let's just say good follow through with an elder who's a close friend in terms of living out the faith. So fall back on his character, fall back on Hebrews chapter 11. Many of the patriarchs never heard of Jesus Christ and yet they're going to be in heaven. Fall back on Romans chapter two, the knowledge that has been given to you, that is what you'll be judged on. Fall back on Immanuel Kant, who says the starry skies and the conscience within that is evidence enough for me to actually believe in God. And so that conscience is everybody does know what's truly right or wrong. And everyone's ultimately going to accept believing in God and living for God rather than ultimately living for self. Gotcha. Thank you so much. Um, we did get the clarification from Contrarian 420. Um, I'm just going to scroll back up and see what he said before. He said, aren't you letting the word God obscure your viable theory of the hard mm -hmm. problem of consciousness? So his clarification says, as an atheist, 
you are throwing out the theory of God as an external being, like the Abrahamic religions believe, and throwing out the more Eastern concept of God as consciousness. Okay, so if God means, I mean, he's right. I should have stressed that... and, and throwing out the more Eastern concept of God as consciousness. Got it. Okay. Uh, so he's right that the, uh, that everything that I've said tonight has been directed at the idea of God meaning a being external to, you know, prior to the universe that created the universe, uh, you know, rules over it, etc. Because I've taken it that that's what's in dispute between me and Stuart, that that's, uh, that that's, you know, that's what he means by God, as far as I can tell. And so that's what I've been arguing against. Now, if you're going to use the word God uh, to mean something else, then that's just a different debate. Uh, and and I'm, I'm happy to have that one too. Uh, but I, I, I guess I'm a little skeptical that just saying that, well, you know, there's some other way of using the word God, where God is consciousness or consciousness is God, that that by itself is going to tell us much about the hard problem of consciousness. The hard problem of consciousness is the problem of, um, of how it is that, um, you know, how to explain our sort of experience of, of consciousness, you know, it's what's sometimes called, you know, qualia, right, qualitative mental states, how to explain that in, in physical terms that, you know, I, and I, I just don't, uh, I mean, you could just be a dualist, right, I mean, maybe that's what he means, but that, again, that seems like a slightly separate question to me from God or no God, but uh, I, I just, I'm, I'd be very skeptical that just having some sort of, you know, I don't know if this is some kind of like Krishna consciousness thing or something else, but like having some sort of mystical conception of God and consciousness being the same thing, I'd be very skeptical that that's going to shed any light on that problem. Gotcha. Thank you so much. Ladies and gentlemen, um, we have just over five minutes left in the Q&A. A few more questions left. We, we probably won't get to any more um, Super Chats if you send them in now. So just letting you know, if you are thinking of sending a Super Chat, it probably won't get read. So uh, moving along. Made by Jim Bob for $4.99. Ben, you must have faith in a plethora of things before you can describe anything as true in the external world. I mean, I... I guess the question is what uh, what he means by faith. So, if if the claim is that uh, any time you know that like I, I I make some sort of simple you know observational statement you know uh, snow is white. It's snowing right now. It's not snowing right now. You know the uh, um, you know I'm holding up three fingers. You know whatever that uh, if you ask me to justify that, and I'm gonna justify it by appealing to some other statements and that, you know, you say, okay, but why should I believe that's true that I'm gonna have to, you know, I'm gonna have to justify that further. And I, I suspect this is what he means that eventually, you know, that like, um, I'm gonna get back to stuff that I, I can't provide a further justification for. Uh, and, so, uh, you know, so there are there are views according to which, um, you know, the stuff that, you know, that I'm, I'm eventually going to have to fall back on is, is self-evident or I could somehow be sure of it a priori. Uh, but I think 
you know, I don't know that I accept any of that, but I, I, I think that uh, it could be, right? That there is, a, that there are certain beliefs like my perceptions are sometimes accurate, you know, that there is an external world. I'm not just a disembodied Cartesian mind being tricked by a demon into thinking there's an external world, that it could be that those beliefs, you know, are, are things that, that can't be further justified. Those are just sort of basic assumptions uh, that, you know, that you can't justify outside of them. Uh, and that could be true, but even if it is true, I'm not quite sure you know, I mean, I mean, presumably the point of the question is that this is somehow going to undermine everything I'm saying about why, you know, it's God probably doesn't exist, but I'd really question that connection, right? I mean, because, you know, even if some of our most basic assumptions about the world for the sake of argument, right, can't be justified, that's not a very good reason to say, and this other stuff, right, that we also can't justify is, is also true, right? I mean, like, presumably, if we're engaged in a project of reasoning about everything, if we're not just sort of giving up on trying to use reason to figure out what's true and what's false, uh, then we are rejecting some things, right? I mean, that the, that, you know, we all agree uh, that the, you know, vast majority of gods that people have believed in in human history don't exist. Uh, nobody's arguing, you know, nobody's arguing against that, you know, we're, uh, you know, we all agree that, um, you know, that the, uh, that it's not the case that, uh, that, you know, the tooth fairy exists. We all agree that it's not, the, you know, there are lots and lots of things that nobody or almost nobody is going to argue exist. Um, and so either you let open the floodgates to everything. You say, well, because there are certain basic premises that I don't know how to further justify, therefore, I could just never throw anything out. I just have to accept it all. And then you just end up believing everything in a totally incoherent way. Or you say, okay, uh, there are certain things that seem to be true that I might not be able to, to justify, but then there are these other things that don't seem to be obviously true. And I can at least try to figure out if they fit in with all the things that seem to be true for my evidence around the world around me. And I'd say that the first one is just a path to insanity. Uh, the second one makes a lot more sense to me. And by the way, I would also apply that to moral reasoning. Stuart just quoted Kant, uh, who thought that there was objective moral truth that had nothing to do with God, uh, that, uh, that there are things that could, you know, that things are morally right because they fit with the categorical imperative and wrong otherwise. And that has absolutely nothing to do with whether there's a God. You don't know that quote, though? I, I agree. Kantian ethics. No, I I, 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 know, I know the quote, but the point, the point yeah. is just that, like, the point is just that Kant you know, is somebody who who's not on your side here, right? Like he's somebody who is a moral realist, um, but is not a theist. You know, is not a divine command ethicist. You know, he's a theist maybe, but he, he's not a, he doesn't believe that God is the basis of morality. He thinks that reason is the basis of morality uh, and that it's it, there's no sense in which God being the way that God is, is the reason why anything's morally right or wrong. But I like his quote though. We've got like two more questions to get through. Fair enough. Okay, <laughs> Dr. Burgess, are you? Oh, this is for um, Pedro HM for twenty eight dollars, or I'm not sure if it's dollars. Um, Dr. Burgess, are you familiar with the Godel model? I'm sorry, the Godel theorem. If so, there is a what? Is there a way to fit God in this paradigm? Okay, so uh, Godel's incompleteness theorem uh, is uh, supposed to, yeah, Kirk Godel is, is a uh, 
Austrian, I think, uh, you know, mathematician and logician uh, from, um, you know, the uh, early to mid 20th century. Uh, and it's supposed to show that you can't have a system that's both uh, complete and consistent, that, uh, that in other words, that you, um, that if you have a sort of set of axioms that you're deriving further things from, uh, then uh, that it's supposed to be impossible, you know, there's supposed to be a way to prove that you're always going to have things that seem to be true that, you know, that aren't uh, provable within the system. I suspect that I just mangled that explanation at the end, forgive me, it's late, but, uh, but the, but the, the takeaway, right, is that, um, is that it's it's supposed to be impossible to have a system of you know axiomatic system that's both complete right so it could justify its own axioms and also internally consistent uh, and you know of course that's a result about a very narrow kind of mathematical um, reasoning but some people will draw big conclusions about uh, you know philosophy of mind and you know how consciousness works and other things from that. I'm pretty skeptical about those arguments, although that's probably neither here nor there for now. But as far as, as how it's supposed to relate to the God issue, I, the only way I can see that that would be related would be to take us back to the question that we were just talking about, right? In, in other words, uh, well, if there are certain things that you can't justify, right? In this case, because the system, you know, if it's internally consistent, it leaves some stuff out, right? You know, can't justify all of its own axioms. Uh, if there's stuff that you can't uh, that you can't justify, are you still allowed to say that there are some things that are probably not true? And I certainly hope so, because if you can't still say, well, here are some things that, given the best evidence that we have, are probably not true, then again, like taking that seriously would just be being a trivialist, thinking that everything is true. And you know, I don't think it's even psychological possible for a person to really be a trivialist like everybody disbelieves some things i mean that would just be a total psychotic break from reality okay gotcha thank you so much we have one more question um for stuart and then that's it you want you ready stuart can you take it sorry <laughs> okay for five dollars from molasses um stuart the ankh egyptian god horus on cross predating christianity by 3,200 years. Evidence is natural. You can't have evidence of the supernatural. Evidence is natural. You can't have evidence of the supernatural. Okay, so that story, Osiris, and what happened with, I would say, the cutting up of certain members of one's body and being given let's just say in, in, in different, I'm going to have to go back and look at the story, but the story is radically different from, from what happened. If you look at the pagan deities and their stories and the crop cycles and the dying and rising of gods. And I think that's where that person is going. Radically different from, from the historicity of Jesus Christ, his life, death and resurrection and all the evidence there. So if you want, maybe the person wants to reword that into the sense of in this claim that I'm making with, with the resurrection that we didn't go over tonight is perhaps you need, you know, extraordinary evidence for an extraordinary claim kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And I'm glad that Ben did not bring that up. 
glad Ben didn't get too detailed in defining what kind of evidence he needs, because I hear atheists, usually one-on-one debates, they move the goalposts so much, it's scary. Like, it's actually comical. It's honestly, many, many well-known, very well-educated atheists will honestly say to me stuff like, yeah, there's zero evidence. And I said, okay, all right, what kind of evidence do you need? Uh, I don't know. I don't want to tell you. I, I don't know. Okay, well, I'll, and then I'll say stuff like, okay, well, if you get a full message written to yourself in the sky and then say an essay after that, all the stars aligning and everybody's watching it happen, is potentially that even a little bit? No, no, no. Nothing whatsoever. I need extraordinary. Okay, define extraordinary. I, I can't define extraordinary. I don't, need, I, don't, I don't even know. And they're, they're totally misdefining. Ben, I, I said it, I actually said in a talk recently who, who came up with that definition of extraordinary. But atheists are actually totally misquoting the person. I can't even remember who the person is right now, but completely ripping what they said out of context. That person's rolling over their grave. So I think the whole definition of like what this person just said, what, the difference between earthly evidence and supernatural evidence, it just, just be careful. Like explanatory scope, explanatory power. Like we absolutely got to look at, look at definitions, but you've got to be able to say like, just, I'm glad, I'm glad I got the last one here. I got very lucky with the last one. You've got to be able to say that I doubt my own worldview to be an honest truth seeker. And there are many Christians out there who are overly dogmatic and have not looked at, looked at the foundations for why they believe. And there are many atheists out there who think it is just a joke to even entertain the possibility of a God. And typically, at least the vast majority, and I, I run into thousands of them um, just about every year. I, I will say this, the vast majority of them is for emotional reasons. Emotional, not intellectual, emotional reasons. And so continue just to doubt, doubt your worldview and, and um, doubt other worldviews and then, and then be a truth seeker. So I think that's all I got. Gotcha. Thank you so much. Um, do you guys want to just take 30 seconds real quick? Dr. Ben, you went first, so um, you should go first here mm. so that Stuart can uh, have the final word again. Mm. But do you guys want to just take 30 seconds and just say goodbye or no? Uh, sure. Uh, so, so appreciate the discussion. For the record, I agree that if the stars spilled that out of the sky, that would be evidence for God. Uh, it's possible that God still wouldn't exist, but it'd be pretty good evidence, just like the problem of evil in our world is pretty good evidence that God doesn't exist. But I appreciate the discussion. Uh, I had a lot of fun. Thank you for doing this. Man, I loved it. Thank you so much. Love how you discuss, love how you think, and always open in to doing something like this again. All right. No, thank you guys so much. Thank you, Dr. Ben Burgess. Thank you, Stuart. You guys are the lifeblood of the, of the show. Thank you to all our debaters. Thank you, Amy, for doing all the hard work. Thank you to the moderators in the chat for keeping everything civil. Thank you to James, wherever you are right now, for setting up this platform. Thank you to the audience and everybody who sent in super chats and elevated the conversation. Thank you to everybody for like, sharing, and subscribing to Modern Day Debates. We have many more debates coming up. Uh, joining us Saturday is is Islam harmful will be debated here on Saturday so please come check that out um, our debaters are linked in the description below so please don't forget to check out their links you don't want to miss that um, you know that they have a lot more uh, interesting conversations for you to hear and um, once again uh, thank you to everyone 
for coming out and have a great night. And remember, keep sifting out the reasonable from the unreasonable. Have a great night. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.